So uh, the next talk uh, is something that uh, I suspect everybody uh, sees from time to time in clinical practice, that is uh, immune reconstitution uh, inflammatory syndrome. Uh, Irene Soretti has been uh, studying these patients for 25 years. Uh, she's, been, she's had a program for a long time at NIH and brings in some of the most interesting patients who have some of the most unfortunate but interesting complications in terms of their pathogenesis. She has a lot to say about the uh, pathogenesis and the management of these patients. So Irene Shreddy from uh, NIH. I guess my fun club is here. Um, where is the control? Uh, oops. Okay. All right, great. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much. So hopefully this will be interactive because it's boring to talk nonstop. Um, okay, I think you have the learning objectives there, mostly to identify, be able to identify, describe it, and describe the basic pathophysiology and strategies for management. This is the outline. Um, so I will talk a little bit about the definition of iris in the ART era, uh, how it can present clinically, uh, Two words on pathogenesis, some of the uh, classic opportunistic infections are associated with iris, as well as prevention and treatment considerations, and hopefully we'll have some fun with the case presentations and the questions. So, of course, when we talk about immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, the first thing that comes to mind is usually people with opportunistic infections and what we call advanced HIV disease or low CD4 counts. And so really um, what one uh, has to question is, is there really late presentation of HIV? Does it still exist? And it's been already four years since START uh, was published where now we know that um, um, people with, regardless of the CD4 count, have to be treated with antiretroviral therapy. We just heard that actually some people cannot even wait until they're out of the emergency room. So, but do we actually see late presentations, uh, late, late presentations of HIV infection? And these are actually the data uh, showing how the CD4 count uh, at start of antiretroviral therapy has progressed in different parts of the world. Um, and you see that even in North America in 2015, uh, the starting, um, the diagnosis uh, at CD, the CD4 count at diagnosis of HIV, and for the most part at start of antiretroviral therapy was way below the 500 uh, that was described in uh, START, that it should be the one. Um, and you see that actually in the vast majority, um, in the biggest and the biggest parts of the world, still actually starts um, at pretty low CD4 counts. And um, that was actually the editorial New England Journal of Medicine from the reality trial in uh, people with uh, advanced HIV infection, trying to see the best regimen and whether adding antibiotics may actually improve outcomes. And that is from um, this editorial uh, showing basically that more uh, than a third of the people who start antiretroviral therapy in 2015 already had advanced HIV infection. So the problem still exists, and so people still present with opportunistic infections and late uh, diagnosis. And what does that mean? That means that despite the wonders of antiretroviral therapy, uh, if a patient comes in with low CD4 count and start antiretroviral therapy, their uh, morbidity and mortality will be significantly high, especially the first uh, six months and the first year of antiretroviral therapy. Um, 
so these are uh, data showing cumulative mortality when the CD4 uh, at start of antiretroviral therapy is less than 50. And you see that it's uh, pretty significantly uh, higher than it is even in people with a CD4 count between uh, 50 and 200. And why is that the case? Why do people uh, still die when they start antiretroviral therapy and they have low CD4 counts? Um, well, it takes a while for things to get better as far as the immune system, so they can uh, still die from the ongoing opportunistic infections or new opportunistic infections. Um, medication toxicities are obviously less common now, but these are patients who have polypharmacy from uh, drugs for their opportunistic infections along with HIV. Medication, um, uh, non-infectious complications, uh, venous thromboembolic disease is a big one here and uh, immune reconstitution uh, syndrome, which is not typically a lethal disease, but can, can certainly um, contribute significantly to mortality. And uh, at least from the uh, data that have been published so far, about a third of the people diagnosed in the US who are not that far off, and we are at also immunologic AIDS at HIV diagnosis, and that disproportionately affects uh, minorities. And I hope um, this will change in the future with a better um, diagnosis, a quicker diagnosis of HIV and linkage to care and initiation of treatment. So what, what do we mean by immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome? So it's really a, a syndromic definition, uh, and that's why it's so wordy. Uh, but what we're trying to describe with this term is really um, an unexpected paradoxical worsening of uh, manifestations of the infections or tumors related to infections that we see in HIV people when they start antiretroviral therapy. And it can be either paradoxical when we knew an infection uh, was already present or a tumor, and it can be unmasking um, when usually it was occult prior to ART initiation and then it kind of presents itself afterwards. Uh, so the incidence really can vary widely between even 0% to over 50%, depending on the population and the cohort. Um, the typical features are that it presents within the first six months of antiretroviral therapy in the setting of successful HIV virologic suppression and also successful microbiologic outcome uh, in the cases of paradoxical iris. What does that mean in sort of clinical terms? It means that the patient coming in with TB, uh, or let's say with cryptococcal disease, uh, when they present with this paradoxical worsening, their uh, culture for TB may be negative by then, and then also their culture for crypto may be negative. So it's not the infection being out of control, it's the immune system and the immune response being out of control. So that's sort of really um, at, the, at the heart of iris. The three major clinical predictors to be aware of are really severe CD4 lymphopedia at the start of uh, therapy, a pre-existing infection, opportunistic infection for the most part, uh, although herpes viruses can do that too a lot, even if it is subclinical, and then the shorter treatment of the opportunistic infection prior to starting antiretroviral therapy. Um, that means, in, um, in disease terms, it means that the burden of the underlying opportunistic infection is higher, so when you have not pretreated them for a long time. And in immunologic terms, we tend to say that these patients tend to have higher antigen load. So there's too much underlying infection when you have not pretreated it um, for a long time. 
And of course, we have to trade off, and we elect to start antiretroviral therapy early because that overall improves uh, survival. And so that's a little bit of the trade-off that we have to do in situations such as tuberculosis, for example, where we know that earlier treatment can decrease mortality, but obviously earlier treatment will also increase morbidity from, from iris. So with those uh, things in mind, uh, these are the sort of memorable clinical pictures and examples that um, some of you may have already seen in the clinic. Um, this is a woman who had uh, tuberculosis and uh, developed really persistent and relapsing iris in the form of necrotic uh, lymphadenopathy. And you see she had already undergone several drainages when these pictures were taken. Um, this was a woman originally from Mexico who had crossed the desert to come to the uh, U.S and presented with disseminated histoplasmosis as well as mycobacterium avium complex and had uh, really enlarged and inflamed lymph nodes but was feeling otherwise perfectly fine. It was going to work every day uh, but it required uh, 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 interventional radiology drainage of the lymph nodes that had a lot of histo and MAC in them. Uh, this was a patient also with uh, unmasking uh, mycobacterium avium complex lymphadenitis um, that uh, caused necrotic lymphadenopathy that was compressing actually his uh, uh, trachea and jugular vein and required uh, corticosteroids as well as drainage. And this was a patient uh, who had miliary TB as well as TB arthritis uh, and osteomyelitis who um, ended up developing really severe iris and persistent that um, uh, uh, created blockage of his thoracic duct and ended up with calothorax uh, from, uh, from iris. Um, so I think as health as uh, healthcare professionals, it's good to hear about the description of a of a phenomenon. It's good to hear about the treatment, but I think it's even better if you understand like at least two things of why this is happening and what is causing this uh, phenomenon. So I'm just going to touch uh, base on what cells of the immune system are involved um, and how that translates to some of the things that we see in the clinic. Um, so this is, um, at, at the top you see the CAT scan of a patient, he's originally from, these are all patients actually that we have seen at NIH, I forgot to mention in the beginning. So this is a patient who's, uh, who's originally from Cameroon, presented with mostly extrapulmonary tuberculosis, and he had lymphadenopathy, as you can see here on the CAT scan, axillary lymph nodes. Um, this is prior to antiretroviral therapy initiation. He uh, had improved significantly clinically, clinically on uh, treatment for tuberculosis, and then he was started on antiretroviral therapy, came back with worsening uh, lymphadenopathy, enlarging lymphadenopathy, high fevers, and high uh, C-reactive protein. And um, as, as uh, all of you probably know, one of the tests for tuberculosis is the interferon gamma release assay that sometimes you have ordered in the clinic. So what you do with these assays, um, you take blood from the patient, the blood goes to the laboratory, they incubate the blood with some mycobacterial antigens, and then some cells of the immune system release gamma interferon. So then the next day, they look at the gamma interferon release and they tell you whether the test was positive or not. And this patient's test became positive after he started antiretroviral therapy. And so which are the cells that produce this gamma interferon? You can see that here. So these are all the little dots you're seeing are CD4 cells. And you see that the CD4 cells at the beginning of antiretroviral therapy uh, produce really minimal amounts of uh, TNF-alpha that Mike already uh, mentioned before and interferon gamma. 
but after initiation of of antiretroviral therapy, now they make massive amounts. So all these blue dots now are producing these inflammatory cytokines. So CD4 T cells in these patients make massive amounts of uh, some of the pro-inflammatory cytokines that should be produced in everybody with tuberculosis, but not in these exuberant um, amounts. So the, here you're seeing that almost 20% uh, of the CD4 T cells are really busy making these inflammatory cytokines. And that really, this gamma interference is what gives you the positive uh, interferon gamma release assay. At the same time, uh, there are other cells in the immune system in the what we call the myeloid or innate compartment, so monocytes and macrophages and neutrophils that can also produce a lot of inflammatory cytokines. And in studies that have been done both by my group and others, we have found that um, inflammatory monocytes, oops, for example, oops, I wanted to go back. How does it go back? Oh, perfect, okay. So inflammatory monocytes um, uh, produce things like interleukin-6 and TNF and soluble tissue factor. Um, and so we see this uh, massive production of inflammatory, pro-inflammatory um, cytokines in the setting of immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome. And one of these cytokines is also interleukin-6 that gives you the uh, C-reactive protein production in the liver and, and tests that you can actually test um, in the clinic. So C-reactive protein can be, uh, can be significantly elevated in people who develop immune reconstitution syndrome and can be used in the clinic. Now, another clinical test that we have recently used uh, is inflammatory cells crave sugar, so they need energy. And the fastest way to get energy in the immune system, like in other places, is sugar and glycolysis. So um, we decided to do a study to look at PET scan imaging after administration of um, FTG, which is heavy glucose basically, and then to look at standardized uptake values and see if that could help us um, A, diagnose iris or predict even iris in, in our patients with opportunistic infections. So here you see, for example, um, a patient who had uh, tuberculosis iris, and you can get pictures of hot lymph nodes and organs that are pretty reminiscent of people with uh, cancer, for example. Um, so this is an example of uh, a PET scan before antiretroviral therapy and then after initiation of antiretroviral therapy. Uh, this was uh, actually a patient with uh, tuberculosis, disseminated TB, that uh, shows significant improvement after antiretroviral therapy. And here you see a patient who had MAC at baseline and then developed iris and had uh, worsening of the PET scan with more areas that were hot, as well as new lymph nodes and pulmonary nodules. And in summary, in this study, we found that uh, people who ended up developing iris had more uh, areas, uh, bigger areas of uh, glycolysis in their body prior to starting antiretroviral therapy, and they also had increases after starting antiretroviral therapy. So it both showed that the disease probably was more disseminated in people who developed iris, and there was more inflammation, so more inflammatory cells that were uh, uptaking sugar in these patients. And this correlated with the inflammatory cytokines that I showed you before, uh, putting together this inflamed and sugar-craving immune system along with the images uh, that we saw from the patients. Now, uh, the underlying diseases of uh, immune reconstitution uh, syndrome can include mostly mycobacterial disease, which is really the majority of cases. 
um, um, and it can be both TB and non-tuberculous mycobacteria, cryptococcal disease that can frequently be associated with iris, um, and we're gonna show, I'm gonna show you later how um, more uncontrolled cryptococcal infection can be associated with a higher incidence of iris. And here you need to uh, give a, a lot of attention in the management of high intracranial pressure. It can be life-threatening. Uh, CMV retinitis can be associated with uveitis after treatment initiation. Viral hepatitis can also be linked to iris. Uh, all herpes viruses and um, a special caution for Kaposi sarcoma that has high mortality when there is visceral KS. And then many, many other uh, opportunistic infections, including PCP, PML, um, uh, as well as HPV, Leishmania, Bartonella, and others. Uh, these are data actually from the U.S., uh, from uh, Northwestern, showing the incidence of virus based on CD4 count as well as pathogens. And you see that the lower the CD4 count, the higher the incidence. As you can see here, TB and MAC are really important players, but also CMV retinitis, as I mentioned before, herpes simplex, uh, KS, uh, and then crypto. And of course, less likely are things like lymphoma um, and um, candidiasis. Um, tuberculosis really is the, um, the, probably the biggest problem worldwide, although we see a lot more MAC uh, in the U.S. Uh, clearly, it's associated with timing of antiretroviral therapy. Um, it, ha it happens within two to six weeks after starting therapy, and the higher incidence is in very low CD4 counts. It can either lead to exacerbation of the existing disease or development of new manifestations, and finally, dissemination or death in rare occasions. Uh, but as I, as I mentioned before, we cannot delay antiretroviral therapy in people with very low CD4 counts because that leads to higher mortality. So basically, we pay the price of more iris um, in the patients who have very low CD4 counts um, so that they can pre we can prevent mortality from other opportunistic infections. That is not true for TB meningitis, where the recommendations are to sterilize the CSF before uh, starting antiretroviral therapy. Um, and then last but not least, there should always be differential diagnosis with MDR-TB, which can also be associated uh, with immune reconstitution syndrome. This is a definition used by the International Network uh, of uh, IRIS, and basically you have to have major criteria that include the new or enlarging lymph nodes, abscesses, or other focal tissue involvement, new or worsening radiological features, uh, newer worsening CNS, TB, or newer worsening serositis. And then minor criteria are constitutional symptoms, worsening respiratory symptoms, or um, other localized um, organ systems. Uh, moving to cryptococcal, um, again, a definition by INSHI. Uh, the antecedent criteria include a history of cryptococcal infection that has already improved with antifungal treatment. Um, starting antiretroviral therapy, and then um, mean either new meningitis, intracranial lesions, skin lesions, or pulmonary nodules, or lymphadenopathy, and of course, exclusion of other diagnoses. Um, these are the uh, code result uh, trials. This was uh, uh, early versus deferred HIV uh, treatment in patients with cryptococcal meningitis, um, and this is one of the opportunistic infections where you are required not to start early antiretroviral therapy, but wait until the CSF uh, is sterile and the infection is under control. And that is because the people who got started on therapy immediately 
within the first, uh, within the first two weeks actually ended up with worse uh, survival. And that pretty much shows how cryptococcal meningitis can be a lethal infection uh, in the setting of virus particularly. Um, this shows again how sterility of CSF is important and there is neurologic deterioration and paradoxical iris that happen uh, in the cases here when the culture remained positive when people started uh, therapy. Um, I think hepatitis has been brought up a, a couple of times. Uh, so hepatitis B and C can flare during uh, antiretroviral therapy initiation in the form of iris. It's probably the most difficult one to differentiate between hepatotoxicity of uh, drugs use. Fatalities have been reported. Um, it can be associated uh, with um, a better, actually, seroconversion. So people at the end of the day do better, and they can seroconvert and clear their uh, hep uh, hepatitis E antigen. Um, and then um, uh, finally, it is associated with higher uh, hepatitis viral load prior to antiretroviral therapy initiation. So the most important concepts I think for clinicians include that the patients at high risk are those who come to your care with very low CD4 counts, disseminated opportunistic disease, lack of immune responses in uh, cryptococcal meningitis specifically, and severe anemia. Uh, it is a diagnosis of exclusion, so uh, do not start blindly corticosteroids and unless there is a really life-threatening event where you have not much to lose because these patients are still immunocompromised. Uh, for example, KS can flare uh, in those situations if you have not ruled that out as a hint for one of the questions. Um, high CD4 count is not necessary. Sometimes during iris, the CD4 count has not really increased significantly from starting therapy. All regimens can be associated with iris. There were some observational data suggesting that uh, integrase inhibitors may be more linked to iris, but that has not panned out in uh, randomized uh, studies where either raltegravir or dolutegravir were used. And more recently with raltegravir intensification in the reality study, uh, the two arms had completely identical incidence of iris. And then finally, these are immunocompromised uh, patients, so the law of parsimony does not exist. Uh, so don't try to come up with just one diagnosis. So these patients are allowed to have two or three or four or more uh, infections at the same time. And finally, it's not an HIV-exclusive phenomenon. So we're seeing it now also in transplant patients uh, uh, who have dis disseminated mycobacterial infections. You can see it in uh, PML patients after natalizumab who had MS. Um, and other scenarios where the immune system is sort of recovering. Uh, last, the clinical management. Uh, basically, observation of sim or symptomatic relief for mild cases. Uh, for unmasking, it's really important to uh, obviously diagnose the cryptococcal meningitis as early as possible. Um, and for uh, cryptococcal meningitis, obviously, obviously, sterility of the CSF. Corticosteroids and non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs can be used, uh, drainage of uh, necrotic lymph nodes, and really you should almost never consider discontinuing antiretroviral therapy unless you have to. So in, uh, in our case, the only situation we did that was uh, when a patient had to have surgery, so he was NPO after uh, treatment. And then for prevention of unmasking is really screening for opportunistic in infection in places of high prevalence. So cryptococcal antigen screening uh, and uh, AFP in places where there is a lot of TB. 
Um, this uh, basically shows how you can improve survival by uh, screening for cryptococcal uh, antigen testing. And this would be a problem now with a uh, immediate uh, rollout of antiretroviral therapy with a test and treat in Africa. And there's already case reports um, published uh, where people have really severe unmasking cryptococcal meningitis uh, that can be lethal. So that's something to keep in mind um, when you start therapy, for example, before knowing the CD4 count. Um, this uh, is from a randomized controlled uh, trial showing that early treatment uh, in mild to moderate cases with prednisone leads to better or quicker symptomatic relief. Um, this is at week four of antiretroviral therapy. This uh, was a study where they started a, um, ARVs and then people who developed mild to moderate symptoms of virus were immediately started on prednisone versus placebo and they had better outcomes when prednisone was started earlier for treatment. So these were already symptomatic uh, patients. And then finally last year, um, uh, New England Journal of Medicine published this study, the PREDART, where prednisone was used prophylactically in patients with CD4 count less than 100 and TB. Uh, and they found that using prophylactic prednisone at 40 milligrams per kilo for two weeks and then 20 milligrams per kilo for two weeks uh, significantly uh, contributed to prevention of virus without increasing uh, morbidity and mortality. The big caution and caveat here is these were all outpatients, stable, not critically ill patients in the hospital. Um, so overall milder cases of TB despite the fact that the patients were severely immunocompromised. Um, so I showed you that opportunistic infections remain a reality even in the current era where we know that um, uh, HIV needs to be treated early at high CD4 counts. Uh, immune reconstitution syndrome is an inflammatory reaction that can be managed with maintenance of therapy but may require immunosuppression particularly in the form of corticosteroids when patients are critically ill. The management of immunosuppressed patients should include screening for opportunistic infections. It's important in cryptococcal meningitis to sterilize the CSF prior to starting therapy. Uh, and as I mentioned, unmasking cryptococcal meningitis iris may increase with test and treat or allowed in high prevalence areas. And that's a hint for one of your questions. And then finally, prednisone for prevention or early treatment can only be used in select patients and not very uh, sick patients who are hospitalized. So um, the first case um, is a 38-year-old who, who had persistent hiccups, anemia, and a recent diagnosis of HIV. CD4 count was 10, viral load was 350,000. He had a positive uh, AFP in the BAL uh, that the, was confirmed to be mycobacterium avium uh, complex, but with negative blood culture. He was started on ethambutol and azithromycin and then he was started on antiretroviral therapy. Two weeks later, he presented with worsening hiccups, CD4-63, viral load had suppressed, C-reactive protein was 51 and was 14 at baseline, and then four weeks later, he had really um, significant high fevers, uh, really severe hiccups, uh, CRP of 120, uh, CD4 had gone to 163, and now his, uh, his quantiferon was negative, uh, which was indeterminate at baseline and he had a repeat chest CT. So you see here, this is the baseline uh, CAT scan, and here you see some cavitation. This is the course of his C-reactive protein. And these are your questions regarding his management. What would you do next?
Okay, great. That's excellent. Um, any comments or should we move on? So basically, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I would not start blindly corticosteroids without doing some workup. Uh, bronchoscopy, I think uh, I would accept this as a, as a uh, correct answer. Um, either B or either the second or the fourth would be correct answer. So uh, you could do just a workup because you never know if you're missing something. And also you could consider adding moxifloxacin to the regimen. Okay, so the second one, uh, this was a 30-year-old man with Kaposi sarcoma, CD4 was seven. Uh, he was uh, hepatitis B positive, surface antigen positive, as well as E antigen positive. He was started, um, these are all real cases, so these were from a while ago. So he was started on a tripla, Bactrim azithromycin, and he was given Hep A vaccine. And then he's, uh, I'm showing you here his hepatitis B viral load, and then I'm showing you what happened to his liver function test. So his AST and ALT went through the roof, uh, close to 1,000. And you see that his CD4, though, beautifully uh, started going up, but his viral load suppressed. So the questions are listed there. And you need to answer which is not true. So we mentioned that. So basically the fact that this person had a flare uh, may lead to better um, seroconversion. Um, although, and clearly we are not sure that the drugs did not uh, make a difference, but actually what happened here is we did switch a lot of the drugs and that did not make a change. So we think that it was probably consistent with a hepatitis B um, flare and actually his E converted to negative. Uh, so this, we're gonna go quickly. This was a patient with tuberculosis, had a CD4 of 10. Uh, she was on a tripla, ripe, and Bactrim. Um, she clinically improved. Uh, CD4 went to 84, viral load was less than 40, no fevers, but she complained of blurry vision. And this was her physical exam. So you need to notice the sign, which anybody wants to say what, what does that mean? Yeah, so she has vertical nystagmus. That was not controlled with focusing um, and was continuous. So what would you do first? Excellent, okay, great. So she actually ended up having um, a tuberculoma that was right in the middle of the medulla 
and that was causing just the vertical nystagmus and uh, responded to very low dose prednisone in melted away um, and also uh, we added linezolid just to make sure she had better CSF penetration. Should I do the next one too? Let's, let's do questions. Okay, yeah. cool, yeah. Great. I mean, that's really quick, but. No, thank you. Sure. Bravo. That's a tough topic. We could have gone with cases, but I think we'd run it. Yeah. I think probably folks would have questions. So I have a couple right off the bat. One thing that, um, in that case of Kaposi's, we were focused mostly on the hepatitis story. Um, what about uh, Iris and Kaposi's in the unique situation vis-a-vis -vis steroids? You, you want to review that? The next case. Oh, it was. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. So, um, so all, first of all, the studies of the um, uh, the studies that used uh, corticosteroids for prevention and treatment excluded patients who had obvious KS lesions. Uh, but there are case reports, uh, and actually we had uh, a case series recently at Open Forum Infectious Diseases. So KS can definitely flare with corticosteroids. So that that can be one of the big uh, downsides. And um, one thing to remember here is that African uh, women can also have KS, and people tend to forget uh, who are used to just gay men having uh, KS. So it can definitely flare, and that's, that's one of the big um, problems when you're using corticosteroids for, for tuberculosis sires, for example. Right. So do you have a sense of the mechanism of that? Why? I mean, I, why they, why yeah, why do we get a, why does a steroids cause a, chaos to worsen. It seems paradoxical to me in a way, but it must be something about an immune response that's um, being yeah, inhibited. So some part of the immune response probably, so I presume some of the inflammatory, might, might yes, out. I presume some of the immune response that is suppressed with the corticosteroids is also um, controlling the virus to some extent. Yeah. Um, so in our, in the patient that I was about to show, the case I was about to, to show, it was an unmasking Castleman's disease case, and we ended up using tocilizumab that controlled both the iris and the KS. Yeah. Um, what is the best way to screen folks who have a low CD4 count and you wanted to see about TB? Uh, would you use the quantifiron or? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good question. So, um, if, I, I would say if, if they come from a country where there is a lot of tuberculosis, uh, you could argue that induced sputum should be right. screened by gene experts um, because a chest X-ray is not gonna be useful. I mean, if you can do a, a chest CT, that would make sense. Uh, if they're very sick, hospitalized, um, obviously full workup for, for tuberculosis. Uh, and quantifiron, sometimes it's positive. I mean, sometimes mm -hmm. I have, they produce enough gamma to be positive, uh, but I would definitely do the, at least the sputum. Right. Right, so, so the question Henry's asking is, in the case where the, uh, you had the hepatitis B flare, um, and stopping the drugs or continuing, in particular the tenofovir, and yeah. uh, are there problems with one drug, two drug, um, et cetera? So um, we did not stop the drugs, we changed. I mean, we basically tried to choose the least hepatotoxic regimen you can. Um, so we ended up switching off efavirenz, for example, in that particular patient. 
Um, so if you see any progression of liver towards liver failure, I would say probably yes, you have to stop the drugs. Um, I mean, we got lucky and... And then you had one anti-HPV or two. Uh, would you use tenofovir with FTC or oh, just yes. tenofovir alone? So we are using both. Uh, I mean, we use both. And I think there were probably more worse cases with uh, uh, monotherapy. Hmm. With a 3TC, I think. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Because, yeah, I mean, the TDF by itself should it's work more. pretty well. Um, FTC or 3TC by itself, you worry about resistance after 20 weeks, and if it was just, they were just used alone. Um, let's go back to cryptococcus. I'm just checking the microphones to make sure noise. Um, in crypto, um, that's the one disease where the clinical data suggests that. Um, uh, treating with ARV therapy before you get the crypto under control can have a higher mortality. Mm -hmm. And that's been observed in Sub-Saharan Africa. In the U.S. and in Britain, um, there have been studies that show it's not so much. So d as far as, do you think that's an iris phenomena that's happening with the deaths that are higher um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, or is that how can you explain that? Uh, so I think some, it, it's hard to differentiate between iris and sometimes uncontrolled infection because you, you tend to get a lot more iris and inflammatory response where, when the underlying infection is more prev or, or more, yeah. I guess, um, active, I right. would say. Um, so I, I must say that this was done, um, at least in Uganda, there they, they're pretty sophisticated. They do LPs yep. continuously. Yep. They make sure the intracranial pressure doesn't go up. Um, so it, it's hard to tell if it's like the numbers that they have as opposed right. to our scattered cases yep. here uh, versus you know the overall uh, management of right. the of the disease. So I don't I don't think that it's different. Um, the pathophysiology is different. I think. Right. We're seeing probably the same thing, it's just that we don't see the numbers. And it's interesting because as soon as we opened the new protocol, our first three patients were cryptococcal iris cases. Huh. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I think if you look for it, you probably see more. Yeah, so just to kind of break that down a little bit, um, I think the current recommendations, and, and Dr. Mazur can address this in his talk a little bit, but the, the recommendations would be with somebody with new cryptococcal meningitis, antiretroviral naive, um, you would go ahead and treat the crypto and, and hold for 10 days or so, maybe 14 days before you start the ARV. Is that what you're doing, or are you starting it right away? Um, so for the we, for crypto tre we treat the crypto usually for two to three weeks. Two to three weeks, okay. Yeah. yeah. I usually just start the ARVs as they're getting ready to leave the hospital, so that's about two weeks. Well, I mean, two weeks they get AMFO anyway, yeah, yeah. right, for yeah. the most part, so. Right. Um, Okay, other questions about iris or the use of steroids in particular? It really varies where you are in terms of um, what part, if you're working in Africa versus here, but I think the, the background of the pathobiology is very important um, to understand, especially in terms of use of steroids, it's very yeah. important. Okay. Um, okay, great, thank you very right. much.